Hey there, infant listeners. This is Glenn. Just a quick note before this episode starts. I've got a few listener essays over the last week uh, from from two of you listeners who want to do another listener essay contest. And so I just want to give a reminder, if there are others of you that are interested in doing another listener essay contest, it requires listener essays to do. So I've got two of them right now. I've got four or five of them from previous contests. So I just need a few more. And uh, then once we get to about 10, 12 listener essays, I'll start another listener essay contest. So if that's something that you want to do, you're interested in, Please create a listener essay, send it to infantsonthrones at gmail.com, and we'll get going on this. Now, uh, a comment on today's episode, and I'm going to release it in two parts. This is an interview that I did with Carol Whitaker, and I think it's fascinating. I've been getting really interested in this thing called the Enneagram. Now, at some point, I'm going to tie the Enneagram, or I want to tie the Enneagram back into Mormonism. Mormon Matters did a a really interesting series on this this past November 2018. So if you're interested in the Enneagram and in comparing it to Mormonism, I I can recommend you to what Dan Weatherspoon did with Mormon Matters back in May. He had Jana Reese and another Jana on. Oh, I forget what her last name is. Sorry, other Jana. But I recommend you listen to that. And uh, if you're interested in getting into the Enneagram more or getting more content from Infants on Thrones, you can join the Patreon page, and you can do that from our website, infantsonthrones.com. So having said all that, I give you part one of my conversation with Carol Whitaker. What came first? The chicken or the egg? I'm almost too afraid to ask. (laughs) To get it, too afraid, because the chicken, chicken just scared. Okay, all right. In the beginning, or at least in my beginning, there was chaos. I mean, it was was an organized chaos, but man, what a ride. Because part of me was unfertilized egg, just hanging out in my mom's right ovary until the day I dropped and started down that long tube. And another part of me was one of millions of little swimming sperm. I was the best one, mind you. And every single one of them, well, they were just happy to be there. And in one weird moment that I barely remember, those two different parts of me came together and wham! Things started changing fast. Now, I started off as one single cell. Now, if you would have told me in that moment everything that would go on to impact me and be impacted by me, I would have had no clue what you were saying because I had no ears, I had no brain, no way of interpreting the clumsy way that you disrupt air molecules to make sound and try to convey meaning. I mean, I had the potential to create all those things, but... I hadn't done it yet. I was just a single cell. In fact, in that moment of single cellhood, I had the potential to create a lot of things. This podcast, for example. My own children that I would father many years later. Hair growing out of my yet-to-be-formed head and face and back. That's gross. I love it. Now, as a single cell, I was mainly just potential. 
I can't tell you exactly when consciousness arose in me. I don't know if it arose as a result of the brain that I started growing for myself, or if the living sperm cell or the egg that combined to make me, if any of those things or any atomic or my subatomic building blocks that were there, I, I don't know if any of those things had consciousness all of their own, but I know that I'm conscious now, of some things at least, and I know that from that single cell, I grew arms and legs and fingers, and I know that from that potential of a single cell, I also eventually created habits and neural pathways that give me a thing called a personality. Yeah, that's, that's what I said. And I know that today, I will be talking with someone about that personality, how it was formed, and how similar that process is for each one of us who were once a single cell of potential, who are now, for the moment at least, much, much more. But that's how I started, except for the parts that were already there, the subatomic parts that have always been there. But I don't know, which came first? The chicken or the egg? And why did the chicken cross the road? Probably to avoid answering questions like these. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 573, The Enneagram as a Tool for Personal Discovery with Carol Whitaker, part one. Now, I met Carol about a month ago at an Enneagram workshop sponsored by the Arizona Enneagram Association. Now, Carol has nearly 25 years of experience working with the Enneagram. She's a scientist and a teacher and knows how it feels to go through a crisis of faith. And if you're wondering, Carol is an eight on the Enneagram. I am a seven, and this is part one of my conversation with Carol. Enjoy. All right, Carol, well, thank you very much for the time today. And I, I think what, what I'd like to, to do is just start off with a little bit of, of background so, so that you know the audience of Infants on Thrones, um, you know, we, we average around five, 6,000 people listening per episode. And most of those are, um, former Mormons. Some of them are currently, um, attending church, but maybe they're not a believer, but their spouses, um, the, that's probably the majority, um, with that kind of a Mormon background. We do have some listeners who, aren't uh, Mormon, have never been Mormon, but they've either experienced some kind of a faith crisis or they're just interested in hearing people who talk about uh, what happens when they go through a faith crisis um, and, and where do you go? So I, I spent probably the first um, several years of this podcast with, with my friends that have been doing it as a way of like um, deconstructing Mormon belief and, and belief in general and, and ideas about religion and spirituality. Uh, and then the last maybe year or two really focusing on, okay, now what, what, what comes after the deconstruction? How, how do you find, you know, because I, I, I don't like this empty space of 
nihilism and atheism and there's not any meaning. And, you know, so I've been interested in spirituality and talking to people with other kind of spiritual traditions. And, and that's led me to the Enneagram and some other things. So maybe that could be an introduction, you know, starting from there, this is the group of people that you're talking to um, and uh, explain a little bit about yourself and your life, what led you to the Enneagram. And then we'll talk about uh, the Enneagram. Well, Glenn, my, my own background is Roman Catholic, uh-huh. but I do share the pathway through a crisis uh, in faith and yeah. a long period of uh, not just reconstruction, but of uh, coming to uh, wholeness. Mm-hmm. And Enneagram has been very helpful to me in that. So in, in brief outline, um, uh, I... Uh, my my first real faith experience was in high school. My stepmother had sent me to a very prestigious uh, girls uh, Catholic girls high school, and I didn't know anything about religion. So I asked the principal of the school to please teach me uh, catechism because I didn't want to have to sit in a religion class with people who had eight years of the subject I'd never heard of. What what is catechism? Catechism is teaching. Catechism okay, is, a, is a teaching of the a teaching of the faith. Okay. And so um, she did so, and within weeks, what I discovered was the love of God. And I thought that God's love was the most exciting, wonderful thing that I'd ever heard of in my 13 years uh, on the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the time in which um, I entered formally into the Catholic Church. Uh, and my high school years were really, really wonderful years. At the end of that time, uh, I was so excited about this um uh, reality of uh, God's grace and love in the world that I entered the convent, mm. and I spent 17 years uh, in the content in the convent um, and in a teaching role. So, um, uh, my academic training during that period of time was in the field of chemistry and mathematics, and I taught uh, grammar school, junior high, high school, and college over that period of time. Did you do that here in Arizona? No, no. Uh, this was in Los Angeles. Okay. In Los Angeles and spent the first 40-some years of my life there. Okay. Um, so somewhere around, well, it was the 1960s, you know, uh, lots of things were being uh, questioned. Um, and the uh, on one hand, uh, what I knew as religious faith and uh, uh, uh the culture within the convent was uh, internally consistent, but it wasn't very consistent if you stepped out of that circle uh, and in relationship to the world. So uh, near the end of my time there, I was going to, um, I was asked to go and get my doctorate in chemistry and I was at UCLA. Mm -hmm. So I'm now between two worlds uh, the religious world and the world of science, which were uh, greatly at conflict with one mm-hmm. another. Sure. So uh, after leaving the my religious community, I stayed at UCLA. I completed my PhD um, in chemistry and then worked in adult education as a um, uh, uh, as an uh, education specialist, an adult education specialist in the fields of science, of physical science. So at that period of time, in fact, it's much the same, but the uh, science area of the university, which is all of the sciences in the medical school, sort of the foundational perspective 
is that there is no such thing as a spiritual reality. Mm. So I, I just fell into a very agnostic. I didn't, I didn't decide to leave the church, uh, but it, I couldn't go to church anymore. Uh, the, the words were just uh, didn't making any sense to me at all. And so I just went to a period of being agnostic and not caring. So what did you think was going on when people were claiming spiritual experience? Because you, you were getting this story on the one hand that is saying there's no such thing as spiritual experience, and you're kind of leaning that way. Is, is, am I understanding that right? Well, uh, upon, leaving the, upon leaving the convent, uh, when I went to church, the, the poor pastor only had two subjects, one of which was sex and the other was uh, money. Mm. I said, well, this isn't religion or faith the way I heard it. So I just removed myself, mm. stopped praying. So I removed myself from religious community. I stopped praying and I cut off the connections and didn't bother to try to reestablish them. Mm. My work environment has the assumption is that there is no such thing as a, a spiritual reality. Uh, and if you believe that there is, you're suspect as a scientist. Sure, yeah. So I stopped asking questions. I, mm. I just zoned out on that and stopped asking questions for a fairly long period of my life. So uh, I don't want to get lost in the next piece of the story, so I'll just put it out there. But I took it into my mind uh, in um, the 19, end of the 1970s, 1979, to um, uh, develop a native Arizona plant into an agricultural industry, a project for which I had absolutely no uh, foundations at all. But I left Los Angeles, came to Arizona, and worked for uh, 17 years in developing a farm property here in Arizona to grow this plant under controlled conditions um, and have it uh, produce in a reliable fashion and develop a market for it. That's uh, it's uh, uh, the plant is jojoba. Jojoba, yeah, yeah. It it uh, produces a, a unique and outstanding oil mm -hmm. uh, in its seeds. So that was a very very demanding, extremely demanding uh, project, uh, almost an impossible project to um, actually um, uh, develop a native plant into an agricultural industry. So it ended in technical success and financial failure. Hmm. Uh, after a number of years, we were at the point where uh, we were producing. Uh, we had reached uh, a break-even, a slight profit, uh, and all was well uh, until the market shifted uh, in 1992 and 1993. And the market price dropped precipitously. Uh, and then put us back in our company back into a position of not being profitable any mm. longer, which meant that this is an $8 million cost and evaluated an $8 million uh, property and business. Mm. And a creditor uh, said, well, you're not worth anything now. So I foreclosed on my $600,000 loan uh, and uh, took the, uh, took the property into foreclosure, et cetera. So that was very bad for me personally, since I can do all things to which I put my mind. Um, and it was devastating to me to have uh, colleagues in this industry um, uh, 
assume uh, the stance of being vultures, mm-hmm. of uh, assisting um, in any way that they could to help put our company out of business because it was to their benefit to take over our assets sure. uh, and our market share. I lost faith and confidence in ho- humankind. Yeah. I completely lost confidence in humankind and um, was probably headed for um, some kind of nervous breakdown or uh, at least personality meltdown. Uh, My anger and fear were so great that I actually couldn't speak. Hmm. I would just get stuck in my throat and I couldn't even get any words out. So, uh, So by 1993, I knew that I was personally in very serious trouble. Mm. Uh, I didn't know what to do about it. Uh, I didn't think that psychotherapy was going to be helpful because it just made me angry uh, to tell the story. Mm -hmm. And what I did know was that I had to return to prayer. Mm. I, I had to return to prayer. And I had two problems with that. One of the problems was that I didn't know how to pray any longer, and I didn't know if there's anyone to pray to. Sure. So um, in that state, in that place, uh, I was driving down Lincoln one day, and my car turned into the driveway of the Franciscan Renewal Center, uh, and they were uh, advertising, they had a little flyer there saying that, Uh, a a program called Spiritual Companions was going to uh, begin in January. And the people would meet all day long, one Saturday a month for a year. And they were going to do centering prayer and union psychology um, and work with myth and work with um, intercommunication. I said, fine, doesn't say anything about church, so it (laughs) should be safe. So I'm going to do this thing. So uh, I did, and I paid my tuition, and I made my commitment, and it's not our subject for today, but I have to tell you that Centering Prayer saved my life. Hmm. It saved saved my mental, emotional, spiritual, it completely saved my life. What what is Centering Prayer, and is is it like meditation? It it is. It's a meditation-type practice, but meditation practices are uh, practices of attention. It's using the faculty of attention. They're very powerful and they're very wonderful. Centering prayer is a practice of intention. Mm. And the intention is to consent to God's presence. Simply consent. To God's presence. How did how did you do that when when you weren't like like when you you said that you weren't sure when you were praying if there was a God that was listening? Would you have considered yourself agnostic or atheist at that point? Like was it a? I was not atheist, but I was pretty agnostic. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to tell you the answer to the question, but I don't know how it's how it's possible. Okay. <laughs> so, so I was very unsure about the existence of God but I was very certain about the existence of the Holy Spirit. Mm. The Holy Spirit is the Trinity, is is God, but I had a a physical innate um, sense based on previous experience uh, of the presence of the Spirit. 
So from, from that place in an extremely awkward uh, uh, state, uh, I followed the instructions, uh, which were simply to bring my attention in and gather it, and then to turn to consent to the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, and my consent word was let go. Now, that word, I didn't know any holy words. I didn't have any holy words that I could say in this place. But let go came up, and the practice of letting go opened the doorway and the floodgates for grace to move into my body, mind again. And what, what is it that you, what, that you feel like you were letting go of? I was just letting go. Letting go of the tightness, letting go. It was never, it was just let go. Let go and let go and let God, I suppose, would be pretty close to it. Mm. So the what is let go of, well, this isn't really our conversation for today, but the, the letting go in the practice of centering prayer, I have discovered, is whatever it is that you need is what comes up. Hmm. Just, so, just in the course of your life just in the course of the practice and just in the course of life so I'll okay. give you an example uh, you uh, know from our brief relationship already hmm. that my type is 8 and that I'm uh, an, uh, a very willful person strong willed very willful person so the first thing that this practice taught me after a number of months was that something inside my psyche, my heart, switched from willful to willing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would never, if, if someone had told me that this was a practice of becoming willing, I would never have taken up this practice. Sure, yeah. Willful works for me. Yeah. But the switch to willing open doorways it opened uh, a capacity for receptivity mm-hmm. it opened a capacity for uh, having the sense that what my life was about yours too what my life was about was a really a dance a dance in relationship to spirit uh, being close enough to feel and sense the presence and to respond to whatever it is that is arising. And so it becomes the unfolding of a dance. That was a huge shift in my consciousness. It was a, a really big shift. So, so that, that whole year of spiritual companions, of, of this wonderful practice of centering prayer, that's daily practice, by the way. Okay. 20-minute practice every day, minimum. Uh, recommended twice a day, uh, but of communication, of really speaking and communication with one other person and learning to listen and communicate back. Um, we had a wonderful Jungian uh, psychologist uh, that just did wonderful things with us, with imaging, using visualization, mm-hmm. having an understanding of the formation of the self, uh, an understanding of an inner self and of a core self. It was great stuff. Mm -hmm. 
at the end of, uh, of, of the year, which was the end of 94, um, I knew that something very profound had shifted and changed within me. I didn't know what it was, and scientist that I am, I needed to explore it and, and try to understand what it was that was taking place within my own consciousness. And that has set me on this 25-year mm-hmm. um, exploration of, of human consciousness. So then in, uh, it was early in 1990. Oh, so just to complete that piece for you. Um, so that eventually led to my returning to church. Mm-hmm. In, this, in this place of, again, experiencing grace, of trusting God's presence within me, I was led to, or called, uh, drawn um, into returning to attending Mass. So I would go attend in Mass. This is at the Franciscan Renewal Center, which is a very lively, uh, opening, welcoming community. Um, and uh, I, I was afraid of, of being there. It was like I didn't really belong. I had you know, separated myself. Yeah. And bit by bit, I was drawn back to uh, the Sacrament of Eucharist. Uh, in 1996, I was invited to serve on a team of people that helps uh, uh, adults uh, become initiated into the uh, Catholic Church and faith. Uh, I warned them that that would be dangerous because I might be more likely to um, discourage people from coming into the church than encourage and supporting them and educating them. And this community is so open. They said, no, that's that's we, we need your perspective. We would like you to please come and be a teacher in the program. Uh, I was one of a team of about 12 people. So. That required me to go back through every element of uh, my religious faith and uh, examine it um, from the ground up, from the foundations up, and bring it into consilience with my understanding of the universe, the world, uh, and of science. So that was an extraordinary gift to me to require that um, active study. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, another period of 17 years of, of serving in that capacity. But the Enneagram uh, came into my life in 1995. Uh, people started asking me what type I was. I had not a clue what they were talking about. Uh, so I wandered off to a bookstore and found a book on the Enneagram. Uh, and I was immediately uh, uh, fascinated uh, with with this map. So, um, so I can tell you a little bit about that. Uh, about well, let, let me go for how my journey uh, proceeded from there. Okay. Then I'll come back and talk about the enneagram itself. All right. So I began to. Um, I was invited uh, to by the leaders to please come back and be one of the leaders of the Spiritual Companions Program. And by the way, would I teach the Enneagram rather than the Jungian psychology part of that uh, class? Mm. 
Uh, and in order to do so, I needed to become a certified teacher. So in 1996, I did the certification program with uh, David Daniels and with Ellen Palmer. Um, and that began this whole Enneagram journey uh, for me. We ended up with Helen Palmer and David Daniels coming to uh, the Phoenix area every year over a number of years and bringing us an extraordinary body of work that uh, local teachers then began to uh, put into a, a curriculum in a training such that uh, the, what is now the Arizona Enneagram Association uh, is the largest local Enneagram program in, in the United States. Um, it's really a great program. But the, the, the model itself uh, makes an, uh, an Enneagram just means nine. It's a nine-sided figure. Right. And so it's a, it's a circle that has been divided up into nine points evenly spaced. Um, and they're uh, connected by lines between the points. But this is um, representative of the observation that personalities show up in nine different specific styles, which we can uh, actually trace to being uh, nine uh, structures of consciousness, nine structures of of the human uh, personality. And each of these, uh, each of these personalities, uh, each of these types, they call or called the nine types, um, is uh, characterized by the way in which the person uh, pays attention. You know, you, you wouldn't think about that automatically and say, how do I pay attention or what do I pay attention to? Or kind of like, what details do I focus on compared to how other people focus on certain details? Is, is that exactly? Yeah. I think I think that everybody else sees the world exactly the way that I do. Not so, absolutely right. not so. Right. So I I gave the example of a type one person who is walking into a, a room is immediately going to check out and see what is out of place, what's wrong. Uh, uh, what isn't put together correctly. A type two person walks into the room, checks out the other people in the room and uh, tries to see who in the room might need my help. Mm -hmm. uh, the type three walks into the room and says, uh, how can I gain um, everyone's attention and have them recognize me as being success successful? The type four walks into the room and uh, notices who or what is missing and, and so on. Mm -hmm. so, so these each of these types has a way of paying attention of what it is that they pay attention to, and that becomes a neurological habit within the person. Uh, underlying the habit of attention, there's a habit of emotion. So as we um, come into the world, um, are born and we begin to develop and we begin to get sense experience and we begin to have emotional experience. Uh, our emotional response to the world differs very much depending upon what our temperament is. Um, so uh, there's uh, three of these types are, pre are predominantly uh, have the experience of fear as a, a, a very common emotion, and that emotion becomes 
a neurological uh, habit. The uh, three others uh, have a predominant emotional response of anger, uh, and an anger response becomes a neurophysiological habit. Uh, the three other types in the Enneagram in the heart center, uh, their emotional response is one of distress. It's like the distress of a baby uh, when its mother leaves the room. Mm-hmm. The baby's not sure that mother's coming back, and so the baby wails. Or it's like the what happens to a puppy that gets taken away from its mother for the first time. It cries, it separates. Yeah. So there's this distress that comes up. So these uh, foundational uh, patterns of attention uh, and of emotion are part of our path of coming awake as uh, human beings and interacting with people and relating with people, of giving me a sense of myself, of giving me uh, a recognition of my being uh, an individual uh, human being. So it's all part of that process of our development into um, deeper and wider layers of being human. Um, and we, we sometimes call that the ego, uh, sure. the ego myself. Um, and it's, um, well, my sense is it's really miraculous. It's taken the universe 13.8 billion years right. yeah. to bring forth the human on the human beings on the planet Earth. I don't know where else this has happened in the universe. Right, <laughs> but right now we're, we're at about 13.8 billion years of the unfolding of, of, of the world to uh, bring us to this level of human consciousness. Yeah that has uh, ways of experiencing, uh, processing our experience. It's just extraordinary. Yeah. So, so that's all to the good. But then as we live for a long time now, you know, our average age is not 30 years. Our average age is someplace up in the late 60s or the early 70s. Yeah. And we've come to the place in our personalities where we discover that the patterns that uh, I have developed that allow me to function in the world, that those patterns have now become really boundaries. Mm. Uh, it, it, you know, living out of a pattern of anger, a habit of anger, is not exactly free. Yeah. Living out of a, of a habit of, of, of fearfulness, of seeing danger in the environment, of projecting a danger out into the environment, uh, that's not particularly freeing. Um, and it uh, covers, uh, it keeps us unaware, it keeps us unaware of, of a deeper level and layer of our own selves. Yeah, you talk, I remember you, you talked about this in, in the class that and and I forget exactly what you called it, but you had that diagram that looked like um, kind of a yin and a yang, but there's three of them instead of two of them. And that was was it the essential self? Is that what you talked about? That yes, the, kind of the that that represents who we are at the point of conception before. Is, is that right? Yes, it is right. And and I ha- and I have to remind you that this is my image. Sure, I'm just trying to express something. So. 
a number of years ago, after I had begun working with the Enneagram and teaching it and developing classes, um, I was on a long retreat. It was a 30-day retreat. So by this time, I uh, had done a lot of reading and heard a lot about a true self, mm-hmm. a deeper self, a core self, a spiritual self, as distinct or not exactly equal to this personality self. Mm-hmm. So the, this burning question came up on the retreat while I was there, and I said, so what does it look like? I mean, it's formless, and it doesn't yet have a body, so it doesn't look like anything. But my question is, so what does it look like? Yeah. So I started playing with a Crayola and a piece of paper and drawing little diagrams for myself and did that for a couple of days. And it emerged into this circle with three dynamic wings emerging um, in a sense of movement um, and a movement, a, a, a sense of movement and a sense of life. So a few things about that. One is that there was a point at the very center, which for me is the ground of all being, the divine, the ground of all being. There was an unfolding, a, a, a triune unfolding, which is representative to me, to my understanding of Trinity. Mm. And uh, the Trinitarian uh, dance, the perichoresis, uh, interreaction, interaction of the person's manifesting love, mm-hmm. and of that manifestation of love overflowing into the material, becoming overflowing into and manifesting as the physical world. Um, and that this uh, is consciousness. So this kind of consciousness is at the core of my consciousness, mm. my, my, my sense today of soul. We, all, we use that word in a different context and with different meanings. So my own functional understanding of soul is consciousness, which is embodied in human form. Okay. So this consciousness, which is now embodied in that form that is going to grow into Carol over a period of time, there's this core essential self in connection, relationship with the divine and in relationship to matter in which it's going to take form and, and unfold in that way. So, so that core self is um, embodied, yeah. uh, it is alive, meaning it has the qualities of life in it. Now, you're still only a few cells big in the womb. Sure, yeah. So there's, there's no differentiation yet. There's no brain yet. There's no uh, heart yet. There's no skin yet. Uh, but there is this consciousness that has these qualities uh, that are um, uh, natural to it. And uh, the life force is, well, we know what life force does. Life force grows, develops, differentiates, becomes more complex, 
really, you know, ex- extraordinary. You know, what, uh, an area I've gotten really interested in in the last year or two, Carol, is um, quantum mechanics and, you know, like the subatomic energies. That, that That has been kind of like a bridge for me to try to scientifically or maybe pseudoscientifically support the idea of like soul and spirit and things like, like that. Do you, have you played around with that at all? Or is that, uh, Incessantly, Glenn. what's that? Incessantly. Incessantly. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Incessantly. Yeah. I play around with that. Yes. So, so one of the great, uh, um, uh, mm-hmm. and that now is, um, is coming about, with our um, understanding um, of quantum mechanics uh, and quantum physics. So if you do this from the perspective of um, revelation Mm -hmm. and theology, my my take on revelation, in revelation we have the idea in the Western world that God unveils himself and Mm -hmm. gives a a peek at at reality and what reality really looks like. I suspect that what Revelation is, is from God's perspective, that uh, there are places within the creation that it uh, is awakening in such a way that it can see uh, mm. the into itself. So, oh, interesting. Oh, and, I like that. So, yeah. so in, uh, in a theology of Trinity, in a spirituality of Trinity, we see that the, uh, the, 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 the divine, uh, that the first manifestation of the divine is of all things that might or ever could be. Yeah. It's the generation mm. uh, of a realm which is all potentiality all potentiality mm-hmm. it doesn't have any rules yet it's just it's just a, a realm of pure potentiality well quantum physics today recognizes or that there most of the universe is the quantum vacuum mm-hmm. uh, and dark energy right which is the realm of potentiality of all things that might or ever could be mm. so we're so we're coming to a place in our own uh, culture where we are able to see the strong consilience between what has been revealed in the world's religious traditions and how we have to um, work out theories to match our understanding of how the universe works. So, yes, I would concur with you uh, very strongly that there's sort of like a movement um, uh, in the same direction at, at leading us towards um, uh, trusting uh, uh, of seeing a reality of the spiritual realm as a, as um, the material world in, in a sense. No, the material, the material world, uh, I, I envision the three major realms. One is just the realm of, of, of the divine. And of course, mm-hmm. it doesn't have any boundaries. Yeah. It's formless. It has no boundaries. And the realm of potentiality, which likewise doesn't have any boundaries and is within 
that larger realm of the divine. And then potentiality gives rise to energy matter in space-time. So that uh, that which is potential uh, shows up as energy, but energy is equal to matter. Yeah. They keep, you know, changing the form back and forth between energy and matter. Um, And that creates uh, space, that creates space. Yeah. As soon as you have uh, matter. And the matter, the form of the matter keeps getting more complex. And as the form of the matter gets more complex, then it becomes awake consciousness, mm-hmm. self-reflective mm-hmm. consciousness yeah. due to the complexity of the form. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's a really... Um, a, a number of years ago, um, uh, Jastro, was an um, astrophysicist, he wrote a book, I think it was 1990, 1991, and, the, and he was a very, he's a totally agnostic scientist. And the name of his book was called God and the Astronomers. Mm. And the premise of his book was, is that the, astro- that the astronomers, the astrophysicists and the astronomers had been climbing this mountain of truth. They're struggling up this mountain of truth by gathering of data and interpretation of data. And they're within oh. eyesight of the peak of the mountain. And on the peak of the mountain are sitting the prophets. Those who, who have seen reality, but have seen it in a direct way, mm. in a direct way from Revelation. Well, we've wandered away from Enneagram clan. A little, a little bit, but, but I, think the, I think the path back is with this uh, essential self, this, this little circle uh, that you diagrammed on your, your retreat and how you start off with the potentiality. You could go any of these different ways, but you start developing habits through, through time. And, and um, this, this last weekend when I attended a workshop that your, your colleague Andrea was, was teaching, she used a metaphor of a dog in a backyard that just walks around and, you know, the, the dog could go anywhere in the backyard, but, if you've had a dog in a backyard, you see they start wearing tracks in the yard. You can see they've got like a preferred path that they tend to go. And that that's kind of what we do neurologically. And we create these habits. And that, that uh, one way of looking at the Enneagram is, is that this is something that is observing the different neural habits that people have and then giving like a, a typology in this neat little package of nine types filtered through these three different, you know, I mean, there's multiple threes that are in the, yes. the way that the Enneagram is manifested. Um, but I think that's, that's where we get back into it. Maybe. Well, so, so um, I, I hope that I, I hope that I have been clear in, um, um, in saying that our ego structure is extraordinary, wonderful, uh, and meaningful. It is not yeah. something to get rid of, uh, to mm-hmm. kill, um, to condemn, etc. Right. But like life, uh, it's um, uh, it's an, it emerges in the evolution of human consciousness, and it gets messy. And there's a point at which it gets to become a structure uh, that. Uh, keeps us locked in to the patterns. Yeah. And, and, then, and the, the way I understood it from what you were saying before is that it, it, it limits, you know, so, that, so there's certain habits, there's certain things that you're used to seeing and observing, but then that, that prevents you from seeing the other things that are out there that, that are a possibility 
that you have the ability to to see and perceive and to feel and th- think, but maybe not necessarily the inclination. Well, so to... so uh, so I'd like to say a little bit of something about perception. Okay. So the the enneagram type comes about through our perception, our senses, how we see the world, mm-hmm. and through our attention. So the point of that is that that is an intrinsically dualistic um, uh, mode, uh, dualistic mode. When you uh, pay attention to something, you see an object, you're sitting there looking at your computer screen, so your attention is going to the screen, and that splits the field between you, the subject, and the screen, the object. Mm -hmm. So we tend to look down our noses at duality, but this duality is at the heart and core of language and of all technology, of all art, of all creativity. But it does split the field into this and that, up mm-hmm. and down, cold and hot, either or. And it lives. It limits us to this world of either or. Mm-hmm. The inner world cannot be perceived by the attention of the senses. The attention of the senses are made in order to see the world and interact with the world. Our minds at this level are made to think about, uh, to manipulate, to um, uh, relate, um, uh, work with uh, memory and imagination, but it's all in order to uh, relate to the, to the world, to relationship in the world and who I am in the world. But it doesn't have the capacity for seeing the inner world. So that is going to need new and different kinds of capacities. Mm-hmm. That needs a different kind of capacity. So, so why would you want to do it? I mean, I, I, I think that I, uh, I told the group in our class last month, uh, I spoke of spiritual freedom. That each of these nine personality types, in addition to having a habit of emotion that looks like anger or fear or lust, uh, that there's also a, a higher quality of the heart, a higher quality of emotion, which is called the virtue. And the virtue in the Enneagram, this is an observation made within the Enneagram model, that these virtues are qualities of the life force itself, qualities of the heart when the heart is open and at peace. And these these qualities are just extraordinary. They're things like equanimity, serenity, innocence, right action. They're these extraordinary qualities which are part of the life force itself, which we rarely feel when we are in attention, personality, ego mode. We, we, we cut ourselves off perhaps to an extent necessarily, but we cut off, we build an awareness 
to interact with the world and with one another that does not have the capacity to see inward to these qualities. Uh, each of the types, in addition to having a habit of attention, also has a quality called the holy idea. This is a, a higher mental quality. And these qualities are, three of them, are qualities of being itself. You can see them as qualities of the divine. These are called, uh, the, you know, uh, uh, Plato saw them, uh, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Hmm. But the holy ideas there are holy truth, holy love, and holy perfection. Uh, three of them describe, three of these holy ideas, describe the mental faculty of what is my relationship to being or my relationship of uh, my relationship to the divine and these are pretty extraordinary uh, this is a holy work recognizing and realizing that i participate in the work holy faith the knowing with certainty that i participate in love it's holy omniscience or holy wisdom knowing with certainty that i am a part uh, of of uh, of being uh, the other three are qualities of the heart, um, are qualities of the heart center, and those holy ideas are how do I respond to this? G given that all is love and given that I know with certainty I participate in it, this gives me the ability to respond with hope, which is trusting the present to unfold in an optimizing way. So, So the question at this point then is, if these are qualities which are innate, but not accessible to me from the place of my uh, fixated ego, then uh, what would it be like if I opened and freed the places within my personality type uh, that are just habitual? What would happen if um, I uh, recognized my patterns for what they were, not as who I am. What would happen if I uh, uh, began to work with my defense mechanisms? Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier, one of the favorite defenses uh, of the type 8 body type is these arms folded across the chest in protection of one's heart. Mm -hmm. So what would it look like if that defense were actually no longer needed and a person with that personality type could be open and receptive, um, have an open receptive quality. So, so my sense is that the ego is fabulous, and it allows us to do good love and work in the world. The problem with the ego is that it's not done yet. It's not finished. Our human consciousness is not done yet. The fixated ego uh, and my identification with it is a way station in the development of human consciousness, uh, which can go deeper, broader, and much freer. I think it makes a, shows up as a shift um, in from human being to human personhood. Whereas a, a person, you become a, a source of, of creative action in the world itself.
if you can open um, and embody these qualities, these higher qualities, and allow them to transform your consciousness, then you bring them into the whole world. By the way, that you know that word transformation of consciousness gets bantied around. So my take on the meaning of that, because it seems to be what I see in students, it's what I see in people with um, deep practice, spiritual practice, uh, and it's what I see in Enneagram students, and what I really see in people who do both, is that it begins to rewire the connections in our brain. If, 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 if the passion of my type, passion of my type is loose, big energy, huge energy, that's a neurophysiological pattern. If that begins to relax and I let go of it, then that pathway doesn't keep getting reinforced. If the experience, if someone's experience becomes equanimity or peace or serenity, then that becomes a neurological pattern. That's a new neurological pattern. And so the consciousness, brain consciousness, gets rewired. That's what I mean by a transformation of consciousness. It's a real restructuring of consciousness. Okay. Yeah, I... That that's that's interesting to me for a lot of different reasons. Um, I, w- one one of the things I've become really aware of in the last I don't know six months or so is uh, cognitive behavioral distortions. Um, you know, and and all of these different things, these different patterns, these neural pathways that we have. So that this this idea of rewiring the brain to be able to interpret the world in healthier, you know, more full ways is, is really really interesting to me. It's one of the reasons I met you and, and, and went to the, uh, that Enneagram class in, in the first place. Um, so maybe, maybe we could talk now about the nine types and cause you, you've, you've laid the groundwork a little bit for some of the, the, um, the virtues, some of the, the vices of each type. Um, I I'm interested to, to show my listeners how, like what, what each one of these nine types are if we could go around the circle kind of quickly and and summarize them and do it in a way where we tie in the the things that you've talked about um up to this point and that's exactly what we'll do starting with part two which will be published soon so thanks for listening to part one i hope you enjoyed it and as always, thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Hi, this is Hillary. Matt Ryan. Carol Dashley. And I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.